You're listening to Community Radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 1st, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Joyce Miller returns on Thursday. It seems as though San Bernardino County is taking a page from the State of Jefferson Movement's playbook. On November 8th, residents of the Southern California County will vote on Measure EE, which, if passed, would allow elected representatives there to advocate for secession from the state. The California Report has more. After regional news and weather, Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker will discuss how the cannabis industry's water use compares to other industries. Mark Cunaberti closes out our newscast with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. This election year, Californians face plenty of ballot decisions. But voters in one county confront an especially unusual measure. If passed, it could possibly lead to the county breaking off from California and forming a new state. From San Bernardino County, KVCR's Jonathan Linden explains. On a recent Friday evening, a small group of students gathered to listen to a panel at Claremont McKenna College. Up for debate is a local ballot measure that would send a big message, secession from the state of California. If you really think about it, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big deal. That's James Round IV. He's a student here majoring in government. He organized tonight's event to raise awareness around Measure EE. The question before San Bernardino County voters looks something like this. Should local officials study all option to obtain the county's fair share of state funding up to and including secession? That part about secession is what's grabbing people's attention. But the implications, if this was to happen, are extreme and should be taken as seriously as the result could be. San Bernardino County is just east of Los Angeles and is home to more than 2 million people. By area, it's the largest county in the U.S. and is bigger than nine states. But despite its size, some local officials say they're not getting the state's support or resources they deserve. That's partly why secession came up in the first place. And it's not a new idea. The secession movement in San Bernardino, I mean, this is one of about 220 such movements in California history. That's Kevin Way, a Durham University history professor. He says San Bernardino County joins a long history of secession attempts in California. For decades, people in Northern California and Southern Oregon have talked about creating a state of Jefferson. Waite says over a century and a half ago, San Bernardino County was involved in a similar secession movement. And, you know, like the San Bernardino secessionists today, they argued that they basically weren't getting enough of what they needed um, and that they could get more of that if they formed their own territory and ultimately their own state. Among supporters of Measure EE is Fontana Mayor Aquinetta Warren. She says the state has failed to properly invest in essential services such as county jails and courthouses. So the funding that is so dear to everybody of keeping our public safe is not coming directly to our county from the state. But the proposal has also been met with criticism. Generally speaking, I think it is a waste of taxpayers' money to put such a proposal on the ballot. That's State Assembly Majority Leader Eloise Gomez-Reyes. She and two other state representatives wrote a letter opposing the ballot measure. We know that San Bernardino cannot secede from California. They cannot form their own state. The odds of secession happening are slim. It would need to get approval by state legislators and Congress. But its first test is with voters. 
Many people I spoke with hadn't heard much about the secession plan. That includes Jim Montez from Colton. Well, I mean, at first glance, um, talking about this succession, I really don't feel like that our leadership is connected to the community's needs. Montez doesn't know how she'll vote yet, but she does relate to some of the feelings behind this push for secession. I agree that we're underserved, um, underrepresented, underfunded, all of those things. And she says she wants local leaders to speak up. She's just not sure this ballot measure is the best way to do it. For the California Report, I'm Jonathan Linden in San Bernardino. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. Researchers at UC Irvine are warning that as climate change accelerates, the likelihood of a devastating 100-year flood in the Los Angeles basin grows, and such a deluge would most threaten low-income communities of color in the region. From KCRW in Santa Monica, here's Megan Jamerson. According to the report, Black, Latino, and Asian residents are much more likely to be exposed to flooding that is more than three feet deep during an extreme weather event. Researchers modeled a 100-year flood alongside socioeconomic data to highlight where the risks are disproportionately high. In the worst-case scenario, they found that damage would harm low-lying Black and poor neighborhoods the most. That's because they are more likely to live near the region's aging river channels and other waterways. The model Modeling also revealed that nearly 1 million people are living in areas vulnerable to major flooding. That's 30 percent higher than estimates by the federal government. A 100-year flood could overwhelm waterways and storm drains that were built 70 years ago before urban sprawl. For the California Report, I'm Megan Jamerson. And finally, last week I was in London, and while I was there, I did something I do a lot of here in California, talk to homeless people in the UK called Rough Sleepers. One of them was 29-year-old Colin Samuelson, who had pitched his tent near the city's Waterloo Bridge. Colin talked about his struggles and just how hard it is to find affordable housing in London. Coming from California, it all sounded really familiar to me. Uh, homeless services are like here basically terrible because they say they want to help you but they won't help you because they want to put you on a waiting list and once they put you on that waiting list then you have to wait such a long time when you call the number up and ask oh how long is it till i get a house oh sorry sir i don't know it's not like a click of the finger bam there you go takes a very long time, sir. takes a long time. But even with those very real problems for Colin, consider these numbers. London, a city of nearly 9 million residents, had an estimated homeless population of 5,700 people between April and September of this year. Let's compare that to the city of L.A. With less than half of London's population, it has 42,000 people living on its streets. San Francisco, a city with only 800,000 residents, has about 20,000 homeless people over the course of a year. That's nearly four times London's unhoused population. Just some numbers to ponder about the scope of the homeless crisis in California compared to another place. 
And that is the California Report for Tuesday, November 1st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Locally, according to the union newspaper of Grass Valley, Gina Will and defendant Rob Tribble took the witness stand on Monday in Nevada County Superior Court to answer questions from attorneys. Attorneys on Will's behalf are arguing that Tribble is not qualified to hold the position of auditor-controller due to his lack of relevant experience. Tribble pointed out that Nevada County Clerk Recorder Gregory Diaz disqualified two other candidates in separate races due to their lack of qualifications, yet he remained on the ballot. Quote, I think Mr. Diaz, he is supposed to determine whether or not someone is disqualified. Diaz disqualified two others on the ballot, but not me. End quote. Tribble won the June 7th election with 55% of the vote and argues that it wasn't until after Will had lost the election that his qualifications came into question. The Nevada County Superior Court will hear closing arguments in the case on Tuesday, November 8th in Nevada City. Now to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service. Lasting into Wednesday afternoon, the first winter storm of the season is expected to deliver up to two inches of rain in the Sierra foothills and as much as a foot of snow over Donner Summit. The forecast for this evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, showers and thunderstorms, then mostly cloudy after 3 a.m., with lows around 35 degrees. Wednesday, we'll see a 50% chance of showers and a high in the mid-40s. Wednesday evening, a slight chance of showers, followed by patchy fog, with a low around 29. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, a winter weather advisory is in effect through 8 p.m. Wednesday. Total snow accumulations of 1 to 3 inches are expected, and 3 to 9 inches above 7,000 feet. It will be windy, with gusts of up to 50 miles per hour, with 80 to 100 mile per hour winds along the Sierra Crest. Tonight's low is expected to be 18 degrees. Snow levels Wednesday morning could drop as low as 3,500 feet with travel delays and reduced visibility over the passes. Wednesday will be mostly cloudy with a chance of snow showers, a high near 32, and southwest wind with gusts up to 20 miles per hour. Wednesday evening will be mostly cloudy with a low around 11. The forecast calls for clear skies Thursday and Friday. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland, a chance of showers, then partly cloudy with a low around 44. Wednesday, expect morning showers, then mostly sunny with a high near 59 and a low of 40. You are listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Up next, Paul Emery and hydrogeologist Steve Baker discuss this fall's first significant and much-anticipated rain and snow event, the issue of a 15-20% to 20% water demand reduction on the Colorado River, and how the California cannabis industry's water use actually compares to the production of other agricultural commodities. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Water's coming, Steve. Looks like the first significant rain 
and snow in some areas event of this new water year. What do you think? Yeah, that's you're right. I mean, we're going to get, uh, I think, a foot of snow up on the uh, on the divide. When they say significant, that's sort of a relative term. <laughs> the, this rain event may bring about an inch of rain to us uh, this week during the, during the week. So it doesn't sound like uh, enough water to rehydrate all the parched soils and the thirsty vegetation, but we certainly are very happy. I sure am to see it. And, well, of course, more rain is a good thing, even if it's a small amount. I wonder if a generous amount of rain this water year will dissolve some of our water problems. Well, Paul, you know, we're in such a significant deficit right now that I don't expect our water issues to disappear, unfortunately. The federal officials uh, are still seeking better agreements to reduce the water demand. This is an example on the Colorado River. They need to reduce water demand on the Colorado River by 15 to 25 percent. This is region wide, not any specific place. And uh, this they've been asking the all the users of the Colorado River to do this, and they have not achieved that goal. So. This is their, uh, the federal um, officials are making a last-ditch effort to ask everybody to please come up with a way of doing that locally. Work it out. Come up with it. Uh, so uh, if they do not, there will be more draconian measures, unfortunately. And no matter what, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt the various groups. Every, everybody's going to feel it. Now, this is important for us uh, living up here in the foothills to have our radar on this thing that's happening in California because the shortage in the Colorado River creates shortages in Southern California. They receive 20% of their water from the Colorado River. And that puts greater demand on water being diverted from Northern California through the Delta, which includes many of, you know it, our rivers and our creeks up here. So it does eventually hit home. So pay attention to what's happening in the Colorado River. Okay, well, let's... (laughs) That's a big one. But here's another topic, the cannabis industry. It seems like there's been developing pushback onto that industry. Tell us about it. Yeah, there has been. But the cannabis industry is trying to ground truth some of the misleading data. And there is misleading data. Its carbon footprint uh, is one of them and, you know, how how they use their resources, uh, both of those things. And you have players, good and bad, of course, like any other industry. Here, here's an interesting result from a study that was done in Humboldt County. They calculated that they calculated that that the cannabis industry uses 884 acre feet of water. Now, one acre with one foot of water on it is one acre foot. So they use 884 acre feet of water, and that is about 33 times less than one large almond farm in Central Valley. That puts it in perspective. But let's frame it another way, okay? The U.S. Agriculture and Natural Resources, they published the document back in 2019 that shows that cannabis uses about twice as much water per acre as one would growing corn or soybeans or wheat or or wine grapes. So it's certainly, uh, you know, it uses a little more water than these conventional crops, but it uses significantly less water than things like almonds. So keeping that in mind and then realizing that, you know, there are many cannabis growers that do it indoors. And there's a great benefit when you're doing it indoors. You can be much more efficient. And that does play out a lot of times depending on the the cannabis grower. So there are those benefits by uh, accomplished by the style of 
farming that they do. Now, groundwater uh, cannabis users, they are not under any significant regulations, right? But you need to be aware, if you're a cannabis grower, that if the groundwater aquifer is hydraulically connected to service water, then there are regulations that become important. And if you overuse your groundwater and your area of influence it starts impacting others around you, you're going to be met with lawsuits and other things. So it's not, uh, you know, you still have to be careful. But when the cannabis growers demonstrate, and I think they are now in some parts, when they demonstrate their good practices in front of the community, a lot of these misleading views, they're just going to go away. Yeah, well... But the almonds, they're the bad one, right? They're the bad boys of the... Uh... Well, they use a lot of water, but, you know, <laughs> almonds have a, their purpose, too. <laughs> we have to do things in balance. Okay. A lot of information, Steve. You, you always have... I just feel real happy that KVMR, uh, that you're sharing this information with listeners, because you don't necessarily just see these things being presented much to the public. Well, you know, one thing to say about it is uh, when you know these things you can accommodate by learning how to bob and weave and, and deal with it. So we'll be at the end of the day, we're all going to be fine. But these things are going to be happening, and they are happening in some places right now. Thank you, Steve. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with our water guy, Steve Baker, on KVMR. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. Wondering what to do in this volatile market? Mark Cunaberti is here with his thoughts on how to best navigate these increasingly fraught financial waters. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. With the latest rally in stocks, investors must be wondering if this recent bout of green is just another in a series of bear market rallies, which will end in another gut-wrenching sell-off. We have seen this story before in the year 2022. Stocks crash, teeth gnash, and hands ring. Then the markets rally, and hope springs eternal that the portfolio bloodletting is finally over. A few days or weeks pass, and yet another crash takes place, worse than the one before. Repeatedly beaten down in discouragement, investors can find themselves not knowing what to do. Calls to their advisors yield little more than a recording saying, stay the course. Although you've been told the markets always recover, no one really knows how far it will go, how long it will last, Indeed, if it may never come back, I mean, it is possible. There can be solutions for less tolerant investors, as covered previously here in Money Matters. Inflation-protected bonds, called I-bonds from the U.S. government, are currently paying 9.6% annually and are 100% guaranteed. The interest rate adjusts every six months or so, so the yield may increase or decrease over time. You can read more about I-bonds at moneymanagementradio.com. Rates at your local bank or credit union are better than they have been in years. CDs, high-yield savings accounts, and short-term treasury rates, which are U.S. government debt, are nothing to sneeze at and might be worth a look. Another not-so-well-known option is what I call a triggered annuity. An annuity is a contract between you and an insurance company. In the simplest form, you give the insurer a lump sum, and they promise to pay you a certain amount in the future, either 
back in a lump sum or payments stretched out over time. Although there are many variations on annuities, the triggered annuity has some unique features. The specific annuity in my example measures a stock index on the day your annuity takes place. That would be the anniversary date. This particular annuity measures the S&P 500, one of the largest stock indexes in the U.S. market. One year later, the index is measured again. If the index is exactly at the same value or up by any amount, the annuity company credits you 8%. That means if the index rises by only one millionth of a percent or even stays where it is, you get 8%. Every year, the process repeats. If the S&P increases by the next anniversary date, you get another 8%. Once credited, the gains can never be taken back, which means it can only stair-step up and can never go down. The company caps your gain at that 8% a year, so if the index goes up by more than 8%, you still only get the 8%. On the optimistic side of things, if the index goes up even by only one iota every year, as measured on your anniversary date, at 8% a year, you would double your money in 9.1 years. If the index drops in any one year, you don't gain anything, but you never lose any money. If the index drops every year for seven years, which is highly unlikely historically, they will still pay you a minimum guarantee of about 1% compounded over the life of the annuity, which is seven years, which comes out to about 7.2%. You will either get the 7.2% return or the gains in the market, whichever is greater. You can also withdraw 10% a year after the first 12 months if funds are needed. Withdrawing more than the 10% will incur early withdrawal penalties and other terms apply, but an annuity such as the triggered annuity may be a way for investors to participate in up markets yet have their principal guaranteed against loss. In prolonged market crashes such as the one we are experiencing now, which is almost a year old in its duration, a triggered annuity may go a long way in calming investor nerves. After all, who knows how much longer this current market correction will occur and how low it will go. I'm watching the market so you don't have to and that does it for today's Money Matters. This newscast represents my opinion only and does not represent the opinion of this radio station, its staff members or underwriters, or the opinion of any bank, investment firm, or registered investment advisor. Annuities are not FDIC insured and are insured and guaranteed only by the underlying insurance company. Early withdrawal penalties may apply. I hold a BA in Economics with honors, 1979 from San Diego State University and California Insurance License OL34249. My website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberti. That's our newscast for this first day of November. You can listen to this and past newscasts online by visiting kvmr.org or on the KVMR News Podcast. And if you haven't already, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. KVMR gets support from Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse coverings and components, down-to-earth amendments, IPM products, and more. Open Monday through Friday, 10 to 5. K-A-R-M-E-N-S garden.com. And MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience. 
providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. The showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue in Grass Valley. MECBuilds.com A big thanks goes out to Julia Jem, Joyce Miller, and Kelly Reese for their help with this newscast. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening and join us right here on Wednesday for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.